Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Our very own Bill Simmons just released his 500th Bill Simmons podcast episode, featuring Bill Hader talking about HBO's new season of Barry, SNL stories, and favorite movies. And for the very first time, Bill is joined by a long-awaited special guest. He also just recorded a new Rewatchables episode on Fast Five with Shea Serrano. And after you listen to the Rewatchables, head over to the Winging It podcast, where Vince and Kent interview the Fast Five star himself, Ludacris, where they discuss his career, his new music, and Fast 9. You can find these episodes and much more Ringer content on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am editor at TheRigger.com and joining me in the studio, this is a Phillies podcast now! Yes. It's Andy Greenwald! Woo! I love baseball! Baseball has always been my true love. Here's the... Three down! Here's the issue, Chris. Around this time every week, ever since I became very busy... You say things like you check in with me. You're very, you're very patient and tender, friend. You say yeah. things like, uh, "You've been, you've been checking out anything, been engaged in anything, uh, <laughs> consuming any content, culture." And the answer is generally no. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I have a new answer, which is yes, I read every gamer. <laughs> I read every single game recap. Yes, of the Philadelphia Phillies. Yes, like in ev- I, uh, subscribed to the Athletic. Yeah, yeah. Athletic. <laughs> Philadelphia Inquirer, <laughs> NBC Sports, ESPN, whatever. Can I just shoot it into my last veins? Last week is what I'm saying. I think I asked you, uh, "Hey, man, hey, buddy, want to come on the podcast <laughs> and talk about anything you've seen? Anything? Yeah. I, I don't know. I just yeah. I haven't really gotten a chance to watch anything. I'm so really busy. sorry. And then some time passed, and I, I was doing something, and I looked at my phone, yeah. and it had 16 messages. Mm-hmm. from a group chat that we're on where you were just doing the friggin' Harry Callis play-by-play yes. of a Phillies game. So, mashing taters! <laughs> Let's go! Uh, the Reese Hoskins to my Bryce Harper is here. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about So you're the money culture. guy, and I'm like the homegrown I just slugger. call it like I see it. Yeah, that's right. I think I have a little bit more of that Nevada charm than you do, <laughs> frankly. You, you seem like a guy named Reese. Uh, Greenwald, it's so good to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, you got a haircut. I, I did, yeah. Um, for what it's worth, <laughs> for all the good it does me, uh, I have to like ever since I lost, started losing my hair. I have to get my hair cut like every fucking ten days, or it just looks weird. This is what you have to do. This I feel like it's just where I'm at. You okay. know, it's just like what has to happen. But it's ironic. Some would say cruelly ironic that I now pay more to get my hair cut now that there's less hair to cut. Well, I'm not even going to. You can just you, can you say look great. You want. Thanks. <laughs> I just okay. It, it's it's more lovingly curated now. I, I suppose so. Yeah, I wish I had taken this good care of it now, uh, back then. Today, I want to talk a little bit about Barry and Veep, which came back last yeah, night. Yeah, TV shows. I watched them. And, uh, I'm in the business. I thought also, you know, you didn't get a chance to uh, yeah. take a couple of practice swings, as Ooh. it were, at the Jenny Lewis record. Oh, boy. Which is which has really been um, on heavy rotation among many Ringer staffers. There's an incredible Lindsay Zolad's piece about it. I love that piece. Yeah. And so you should check that out on the Ringer. But first, what I wanted to talk to you about yes. was a dark cloud, some would, some would say, Oof. Uh, hanging over like, yeah, not to be like weirdly transparent, but you're in the process of making this television show right now. I am. But there's this other thing happening yeah. in Hollywood, this isn't a bit, that's kind of uh, hanging over the production of yours and everybody else's yeah. uh, production. So can you tell me a little bit about the dispute between the Writers Guild and who's the other specifically? Is it agencies in total, or the, just there's an association ones? of agencies? And okay. so the Writers Guild, of uh, which I'm a member, and everyone who writes for the screen is a member. Um, it's a great union, great healthcare, <laughs> great group of people. They have an agreement, a basic negotiating agreement with the association of agencies, basically to represent writers. Mm-hmm. This is an agreement that has not been updated or changed or amended since the 70s. So there's been a couple of couple of developments since then. A couple of major, major developments. Some major developments. In basically everything. Yeah. And so a year ago, the Guild let the agencies know that they would let the deal expire in a, in a year mm-hmm. unless there were significant changes made to it. And then only recently were negotiations begun in earnest, and there is a lot of fear, anger, and recriminations on both sides. Mm-hmm. And last week, the Guild... Uh, voted overwhelmingly, 95 or 96% of the vote members voting yes, 
to um, basically break from any agencies that did not agree to sign on to a new deal. Right. And there is no new, new deal. And the point of contention um, is the, this concept of packaging. Yeah. Now, packaging is something, this is pretty inside, inside, inside. No, I think it's really interesting, though, because we always talk about casting and and how things get developed. And we talk about like whether or not there was like a hiccup somewhere along the line when someone else might have been the right choice. Now, now let me also say that I am not the spokesman for any of this. My knowledge of this is that of an engaged and concerned participant, but not, I'm not on any board or negotiating committee. I have not attended the guild meetings that I, I, I wish that I could have or should have. Um, but basically, I mean, there's a lot of Phillies games. There are a lot of Phillies games on all of a sudden. Baseball season is really, really taking up my time. But what I understood packaging to be before I got into this side of the business was basically the three major agencies: uh, WME, William Morris Endeavor, CAA, and UTA. And I'm I'm represented by UTA. Would say, okay, well, we have a good script written by one of our clients. Mm-hmm. What we can now, what we can do with our power is. Take one of a take get a director we represent interested get a star or two we represent interested uh, maybe even bring it to a production shingle that we have a that relationship we represent with, and yeah. we put the whole package together for you right and that made things easier and I think that there's an argument that there's a lot of that a lot of independent film uh, would have trouble existing if that if that system went away at least that's the agency's argument what I didn't actually know is that packaging has basically become something else which is to say that just as a matter of course when a TV show is made the agency representing generally the creator or showrunner will get a package on the project. And what that means is a set agreement of percentage payments from the budget that they will make uh, if the show goes to series in perpetuity, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, in return, all of the agency's uh, commissions are waived. So, for example, Briarpatch, I'm a UTA client, Mm -hmm. If I write something for Briar Patch, UTA doesn't take 10% like sure. they normally would. And if there are UTA writers in the room with me, or UTA, a UTA cinematographer, or whatever the case may be, they don't have to pay their commission because UTA is getting paid on the back end. Yeah. And that's more lucrative for UTA? To, if it's Modern Family. Sure. Uh, right. It certainly is. Yeah. Um, no, it's not always. And that's, again, that's the agency's argument, is that they, they take a risk. There were no production profits on a pilot. Right, you know, for example. Right. So that's that's the argument they take. Now, from my point of view, there there are there are two major problems. One is just a really frustrating lack of transparency. I didn't know UTA had a package, for example. Mm-hmm. I adore my agents. I love them. I socialize They're with them. They're pretty cool guys. They're awesome, incredible, <laughs> supportive people who who I like personally and whom I wouldn't be anywhere I wouldn't have any of this uh without them. Um but I, I didn't know that. I didn't know to ask. Generally, you know, th- there are a lot of arguments, and David Simon, in his very David Simony way, yeah. expressed this in a very, you know, very fiery way. What happened to him, where he didn't know in his first go around with agencies when he was selling Homicide, that while he was representing, he was selling the book Homicide the, to become a TV show, the agency where he was at the time also represented Barry Levinson, mm-hmm. who was going to be the executive producer of it. So they were basically negotiating on behalf of Barry against David, who right. was also their client. Right. So there's all these sort of sh- shadowy stuff going on is in terms of whose best interests are really being looked out for. The next So that when is, Barry Levinson goes in and he's like, well, to get me involved, mm-hmm. you have to give up X, Y, and Z amount of power or money or whatever. It, and it turns out that while Barry Levinson, especially at the time, was like mm-hmm. one of the top filmmakers or one of the most popular mainstream mm-hmm. directors, that still, it might not have been like a free market way of doing it for Simon. Right. And, and my and my personal thing is it's just an issue of transparency. Mm-hmm. And whether it's just oversight or hubris or whatever, it's better to know what, what's going on and what decisions are being made for you and who's representing who in each version of it. You can still choose to go along with it. Sure. In many cases, it may actually be. And I, again, I don't know, more lucrative to allow the agency to package, but if you have to know yeah. going in. The second piece is, is that the major agencies have taken on in the last few years, especially WME, but also CAA, and to a lesser degree, DTA, enormous amounts of outside capital, venture capital, and formed production companies of their own. Mm-hmm. So they are basically getting into all sides of the business, which is kind of like what happened, I think, with Wall Street. And, you know, the word fiduciary gets thrown around a lot, but this seems like pretty blatant conflicts of interest. Right. Um, that the agencies have found ways to cake up outrageously. Well, this 
prestige TV and content boom has happened while the writers are increasingly getting left behind. Right. And particularly, like, if WME is producing a show through their Endeavor content arm and then they want a WME client to write on it, who are they representing more? Mm -hmm. And then in the middle of all this, while the agencies are claiming that the writers are getting it wrong and we're going after the wrong enemy and all this stuff, um, WME announces they're going public. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... It's pretty untenable. It seems like there are a lot of financial conflicts of interest that need to be resolved. And the writer's position, which is a very hardline position, was that they have to give up all packaging. That agencies cannot do this if they want to represent us. And so no one seems to be budging. The agency voted yes. And so in a couple days, in less than a week, uh, we are all going to be likely expected to leave our agencies. And do what? Um, Represent yourselves? Well, many writers are also represented by managers or lawyers. Right. right. Um, I'm not among them, um, but they. Are you, are you looking for management? I'm considering. <laughs> Do you, I'm ready to hear your pitch live on mic. Hollywood um, Fixer is ready to they, step in. Look, I mean, he, speaking personally, I'm in an incredibly fortunate position. I'm running my own show. Mm-hmm. All of my work is on this show. UTA negotiated this deal. There aren't any more deals to negotiate right mm-hmm. now. I'm busy. I'm fine. This is happening during, well, it's always staffing season now. So the real victims often are the baby writers, junior writers, who might fall through the cracks, who might not be represented. And so writers are attempting to create a database to help writers hire other writers. That's cool. But I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm sort of optimistic in the sense that it, this business is too intermeshed with each other. I think that some wiggle room might be possible. I don't know how, what it's going to look like or how it's going to look like, but it's crazy. It is, it is a crazy thing. And there is another deal, uh, there's a negotiation g- coming next year between writers and studios. And as a, from, from the writer's perspective, I think it is overdue to take a hard line. Because yeah, I mean, I, it, 500 shows per year, yeah. who's writing them, who's creating them? Right. Who, who has an open market valuation of $2.5 billion? Not the writers. Not this guy. Yeah, right. Maybe James L. Brooks and the other Simpsons guys. But Dick Wolf. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting that this is the reason that there's been this dispute. This is the reason why you guys are kind of uh, across across the line from one another mm-hmm. when you would think that it, if this deal hasn't been updated since the 70s, quite a bit has happened since then. Yeah. To say nothing of the rise and somewhat fall of, of uh, cable, <laughs> you now are in a situation where even the idea in the 70s uh, and early 80s, when people were like, you hit 100 shows, you go to syndication, yeah. that's how you pay for your grandf- grandkids going to college. And now it's like syndication sort of pales in comparison to the way people consume yeah, it doesn't The exist. Office, it, it, 200 episodes it, in six weeks like our friend Sarah it, did. You know, like that's, it's also, you look at it like there, it was, it's always hard to write for TV. But in the old days, it's like a sinecure. You, you get in, you're writing 22 episodes a year. It's a year-round job. Mm-hmm. Um, now, maybe you're writing eight episodes a year. And then you don't get another job until that show comes back. And maybe the showrunner has another project he or she wants to do. So that show doesn't come back for two years. Mm-hmm. So that's not enough to pay your bills. That's not enough to pay your rent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you take away the back end. And, and I'll say this again. As generally, I am not a firebrand. I'm not on the front lines of this. Like I said, I adore my agents. And I think they've done a fantastic job for me. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I know they listen to this podcast. Um, I would say it regardless. And I have many friends who feel the same way. But since the 70s and since the 2000s, um, most facets of the business have found ways to adapt and change to maximize their profits yeah. in the ever-changing marketplace, and writers are still writing. Right. And now there is an uh, altruistic version of packaging that I think makes some sense. I mean, mm-hmm. theoretically, if you were signed with an agent and that agent has some of the same taste that you do mm-hmm. and sort of sees something in you and is like, I like, I'm responding to your voice and I respond to something about your voice in this person's acting or in this person's directing or in this person's cinematography Mm -hmm. there might be a sort of ease of use when it comes to booking a bunch of talent to make something because one of the things just from the back seat that i've Mm -hmm. noticed about making your show is like the idea that you may have in your head about like well we'll just cast a group of actors and put on a show is like it's so much more complicated than that in terms of scheduling people Mm -hmm. in terms of finding when people are available calibrating you know when you're shooting and what how where you're shooting and how you're shooting for this sort of mural of of personalities Mm -hmm. that are all going to be involved. I imagine having one agency sort of helping with all of that is very beneficial rather than dealing with four or five different agencies. It could be, although I'm dealing with 
five or six agencies. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, and that's just sort of the nature of it. Yeah. And you know, and and again, I, I've been very lucky. Like when whether I'm talking to an agent who represents one of the writers that I wanted mm-hmm. to hire or eventually hired, um, or even one of the, an agent who represented a client who ended up taking a different job, but allowed. You know, I had a great meeting with a client. Like we had a, it started a good relationship with someone I couldn't hire. Or whether it's um, the agents who represent the actors, um, it's the business mm-hmm. and. I've been, like, everyone listening or paying any attention to what I'm doing would recognize that I've been extraordinarily fortunate and lucky. But by and large, the people that I've worked with have all been on the up and up Mm -hmm. and have been good faith negotiators and helped, you know, and and put in a good word or liked the script or encouraged their clients. So we're, you know, I've had a great experience. But I do think, and so, so the question for some might be, why are you still talking about this? The question for others might be, why now? But... I've definitely come around to the point of view that we have to, yeah, we have to stand strong now because of the changes that are coming. Because of the fact that even you know you and I on this podcast have recently been talking a lot about how all of the big business plays and streaming plays that are happening now are really for twenty twenty two, twenty twenty one. There are a few years in the future. Yeah, and I also think consolidation is coming. Yeah, you know what I mean. I think that I think that there is a world in the next ten years where there really are only four players. Mm-hmm. And are we one of them? <laughs> I hope so. I mean, so wait, I d- do we count as two players of the four, or are we together? <laughs> no, one? we we come together like Voltron to nice. form a a, okay. a very small player, <laughs> tiny, tiny player. <laughs> um, okay, I, I guess the reason why I wanted to talk about it not only because I think it's like a complicated thing that the average person doesn't necessarily, and, and they're not going to see a disruption. That's the difference between That's the a writer strike now and the writer strike. When, yeah. the, when the writer struck a few years ago and almost struck again a year or two ago. Um, there was an immediate effect. I mean, the late night shows. Friday Night Lights season two gets screwed up. Right. So uh, Breaking Bad had a shorter yeah. first or second season because of it. All the late night shows immediately had no writing staffs and the hosts all had beards or something from what I remember. <laughs> he turned. They all uh, turned into the Will Ferrell teleprompter guy. Basically, instantly. <laughs> um, this is different because the deals, if, if you're a working writer now, you're working under a deal that was negotiated by your agent and that doesn't change. They will, mm-hmm. they will still manage that business for you. And that's another reason why even if this dramatic thing happens on August and April 6th or 7th, there might not be any movement on April 20th. Right. Or May 1st. Right. But slowly things are going to start to... When people are like, when there, when there actually is a slowdown in development and making certain things happen, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. But not this. No. I mean, we don't need packaging. <laughs> we no. are a package. We are the package. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about this Jenny Lewis record? Yeah. So look, I was just thrilled. This is like my equivalent of getting a a link from The Athletic from you because <laughs> Jenny is wonderful. Yeah. I adore her music. I adore her. One-time vocalist of the podcast intro, or at least when I did my own show. Yeah, the Andy Grewal show. Yeah. Um, and her new album is just fire. It's called it, On The Line. It's just incredible. Yeah. And and so I was just enjoying it, just in the, the comfort of my own home. I didn't even, I didn't know. I didn't know that the that the line had become a party line. I did not know that I was going to get a text from you the day of release that said this Jenny Lewis album for president. Yeah, I mean, I my my attitude towards Jenny Lewis is that if she would like to be the new Tom Petty, you're you're okay with that. That would be great. Uh, and and her records give me that. Her last two records, this and Voyager, definitely give me a little bit of that vibe. Yeah, you know, uh, she has such a great way of writing so specific and detailed songs in terms of their lyrics mm-hmm. while also having very like hummable earworm hooks to them and is like just so refreshingly herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's just kind of like such a unique character, this hybrid of like normie LA person dealing with getting older meets like Graham Parsons, angel of country music. Yeah. She, there's something that is resolutely old-fashioned, but in the best possible way. It's not old. It's completely contemporary, but old-fashioned in the sense that it's been four or five years since the Voyager. She writes songs at her own pace. Mm-hmm. She experiences her life at its correct pace. And then when the time is right, she gets... I mean, this is the new version of her. This is, I mean, and, and, and you know, and I've been a fan since Rilo Kiley. This is a very different sort of iteration of her career, but it feels inevitable in a way. Mm-hmm. When the time is right, she gets this murderer's row of session talent. Like Jim Keltner, just this, you know, 
god-level session drummer yeah. Ben Montench from the Heartbreakers and Ringo Starr even sitting in on a few tracks um, and records at like the Capitol Records studios. Yeah, Studio B. And it sounds worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. This, this might be one of my oldest takes <laughs> when I, as I hear it come out of my mouth, but this was, this was worried over and fretted over and cared over and supported and burnished. And it's the kind of record that feels like the best version of itself um, in a wonderful way. And the songwriting is phenomenal and the emotions behind it are incredible. And it's just gorgeous. It's just a great, great piece of work. And I will say that though I am sounding like a thousand-year-old classic rock man when I describe it, my very young daughters also love it. Do they? Yes. That's they, good. They refer to Wasted Youth, beautiful song <laughs> on the record, as uh, Cookie Crumbles because they're fans of cookies. That's good. And there's a line about cookies. Do you just skip Red Bull and Hennessy? They haven't picked up on that. <laughs> um, they do wonder why Wasted Youth is, I wasted my youth on a poppy. Like, how could you waste your life on a flower? Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, I don't know. There's no way you could use a byproduct of that flower <laughs> to transform it into a highly addictive opiate and inject, inject it into your veins yeah. and thus lose youth. <laughs> that doesn't seem appropriate. That would be something I would package. So <laughs> that thought, yeah. yeah, we can, if anybody wants an option on that, on the underlying poppy IP. Daddy explaining heroin. <laughs> Look, it's a minefield out there. <laughs> it's a poppy field. Older daughter. Yeah. Super into Greece, driving home on the 101, like not someone Greece, does that like here. in drachmas, like the musical Oh, Greece, oh yes, you're yeah. not the first person to say that. Someone's <laughs> like, oh, she, has she been vacationing in Mykonos? A dry Assyrtiko <laughs> wine? How austerity, yeah. Uh, the musical Greece, uh-huh. the film Greece. Listening to it. Can we listen to Greece? Sure. Of course. Quiet pause during a, a beauty school dropout song. Dad? What's a hooker? <laughs> She should listen to the Pretty Woman rewatchables. You know, I, I usually when when your voice or Bill's voice comes I wasn't ringing on that out, one, but I did appreciate how many times Bill Bill single handedly brought the word hooker back. Let me say, it's funny that you say bring it back because I can't believe you didn't ask what my my two step was. What my answer was what was it? You know, there's so much old fashioned slang in this movie. I'm not really sure. Good job. Yeah, yeah. On a on a dime, I said. Speaking that. of Bill, famous for. Many things, but among others, showing his children inappropriate popular culture. It's, it's wild to me. Uh, when do you think you're going to start throwing on, I don't know, let's start with Goonies. Like, do you, when do you, ne- never. I saw Goonies in the theater and I'm not over it. Like, <laughs> that freaked me the fuck out. You're still shook one about Chester Copperpot? Chunk. <laughs> right? That's Goonies, right? Uh, Chunk's the just a kid. The, the guy. Who's the scary face guy? I don't, slog. Sloth? Sloth? Yeah, I think so. See, this is my level of understanding of it. Anyway, never. Next, next question. Never. You're never going to show. <laughs> my wife. It's going to be like dog tooth. They, my, they don't know about Goonies. My though. wife showed my older daughter West Side Story like uh-huh. a year and a half ago. She was afraid of rumbles for two weeks. <laughs> she thought rumbles were things that happened out in the world still. Really? Yes. She was scared of rumbles. But she must be excited. I mean, like the Spielberg version is coming. Why would she know that? Like she, what do, you, do you think she gets a deadline push alert on her Fisher Price phone? She's like, Daddy, what's packaging? Guys, this is a thing. My children have not seen the cartoon Dumbo. And my parents come to town, grandma and grandpa come, and they're like, are you excited to see a live action Dumbo? And I'm, what do those words mean in that order? We just talked to Colin Farrell about the it's live action things. Dumbo. Oh, I knew you'd mention it. Why? I just can't casually mention it? You mean the podcast guest I had first? Yeah. Congratulations. I saw you did that. <laughs> Bill and I interviewed Colin Farrell for a Bill Simmons podcast. You did it. That's coming soon. I did it. And Andy's response wasn't like, I know that's your favorite actor. Yeah. I'm really happy for you. It was like, how was he? He's such a magical guy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, because you were like, I talked I had, to him. I talked to him first. Yeah. Did I mention What that? did you talk to him about? I can't remember. You, what was like, you, you mostly. But what was the, what was the hook? Like, what was he promoting? The lobster. The lobster. <laughs> That's not how he talks. Is that how he, are you sure you interviewed Colin Farrell? No, that was the groundskeeper from last oh. night's season premiere of Veep okay. talking about his favorite Yorgos Lanthimos <laughs> <That's> film. right. <laughs> we talked to, oh, I mean, you know, so many things. And it was a rainy day in Manhattan. I think the conversation continued after the mics were off, mm-hmm. you know, about Yates. I think we talked about. Did you? It felt like Yates. Uh-huh. I think it was more um, um, 
Fright Night, but it was. Uh, oh yeah, I no, we didn't. No, we talked about the lobster. We talked about um, you know just his career. He's, he's he's a lovely lovely guy. I remember the pot. I just can't remember what you guys talked about. How did you uh, How did you find him? Dynamite. Did you talk about Miami Vice? Uh huh. Yeah. Did, did, did I don't want to step too much on the podcast. Did, does he have good memories of that time? Uh, no. Does he have any memories of that time? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. He does not. Amazing. Um, all right. Well, let's take a quick break here from our sponsors. Uh, wait, what? I'm happy for you. I know you're happy. You're always happy for me. But I, you just wanted to let me know. It, it wasn't that. It was that super fan Joreen, uh-huh. whom you met. I know, yes. Who said, yes, like, Andy like, must I be must so be, jealous. And yeah. I was like. Uh, it's not so jealous. Not, no. Look. I wouldn't have tweeted if I wasn't a little, little, little bit jealous. Of course I'm jealous. Uh, he was great. That pot should be up, I hope, I think this week, since did, it's Dumbo related. Did you watch Dumbo? In order oh, to the just... whole reason I said this was, at the end of the pod, not to give anything away, yeah. Bill says to Colin Farrell... Um, Are you going to give this away? I am giving it away. <laughs> so excited. It's because it. it's like the end of like a 15-minute podcast. He goes, uh, in one sentence, tell people why they should see Dumbo. And Colin Farrell's eyes like... I don't really think Dumbo needs like an explanation. It, I mean, the it elephant seems like can something fly. people are like either in or out on yeah. Dumbo. And Colin Farrell goes, no, see Dumbo if you want to see Dumbo. First of all, <laughs> <laughs> did Bono come into the... I also, I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't get too into what happens on that podcast, but... But someone asked. I just feel like there, as soon as the photo emerged of longtime <laughs> Phillies fan Chris Ryan wearing his Phillies hat next to Colin Farrell... Yeah. Immediately on internet, that's what people say, right? On internet, people were like, Chris, did you show him your Bono imitation? And I just want to tell the people from all my sources, say, yes, he did. <laughs> so we should leave it like, is that? All right, let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. And we come back, we'll talk about Barry and Veep. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by The Twilight Zone. Don't miss the new CBS All Access original series that will make you ask yourself, what dimension are you even in? Stream The Twilight Zone, hosted and narrated by Academy Award winner Jordan Peele in a role made famous by the classic series creator Rod Serling. The mind-bending reimagining will take you through the genres of sci-fi, horror, and fantasy to explore humanity's hopes, fears, prides, and prejudices in ways you never thought possible until now. The all-star cast includes Seth Rogen, Kumail Nanjiani, Adam Scott, John Cho, Greg Kinnear, Sana Lathan, Allison Tolman, Jacob Tremblay, Stephen Yun, and more. Enter a new dimension, not only of sight and sound, but of mind. The Twilight Zone is now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access. New episodes every Thursday. I can't wait to check this out. I know that they just went up today, April 1st. That's not an April Fool's Day. And you can check out Twilight Zone yourself. Cross over into another dimension. Visit cbs.com slash watchtz to redeem your free trial today. That's cbs.com slash w-a-t-c-h-t-z to redeem your free trial of CBS All Access. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hulu. Hulu's paying some of the league's best players a lot of money to do some pretty crazy stuff. Joel changed his name from The Process to Joel Hulu Has Live Sports and Bead. Damian Lillard got a tattoo that says Hulu Has Live Sports. Clearly, they really want you to know that Hulu Has Live Sports. Get over 60 live and on-demand channels, tons of shows and movies, and exclusive originals with Hulu. Get rid of cable and make the switch for only $45 a month. Watch your favorite teams and the biggest games all season with no cable required. Watch on the go and on all of your favorite devices. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Learn more at Hulu.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT. What does ADT real protection mean? It means you get all of the latest innovation in smart home security from ADT combined with 24-7 monitoring from the most trusted name in home security. You'll get a team of professionals designing and installing a secure smart home just for you. You'll get 18,000 employees safeguarding you with connection to first responders. You'll get the nation's number one smart home security provider. You can get a secure smart home with everything from video doorbells, indoor and outdoor cameras, smart locks and lights, controlled from the ADT app or the sound of your voice. You can get professionally monitored carbon monoxide and smoke detectors. You get a system custom designed to fit your home. Get safety on the go, in the car, or when the kids are at school with the ADT Go app with an SOS button. Learn more at ADT.com slash podcasts. Before we come back. We are back. We're back. I do think that that's interesting. We, we joke. We laugh because we love to laugh on this podcast. <laughs> we have to. You got to um, laugh. Keep them crying. Um, the thing about movies, Chris, <laughs> says longtime non-movie watcher Andy Greenwald, it is in that Dumbo question, which is 
I don't think anybody's on the fence about Dumbo. Yeah, it's like Avengers too. You're on. You, you, there's no one needs to be convinced. No yeah, one's going to see. They don't. They don't need it. It was really funny yesterday. I went to see. Um, I went to see us for the second time. Oh, I damn. took my wife to it. Yeah, uh, and we went. You we know, went to the Vista where you and I saw Captain Marvel. Did you? We have. A, <laughs> did you have a similar experience with her? Was she also well, dazzled by? They did being in the show world? the Godzilla King of Monsters <laughs> uh-huh. trailer. And it was a pre-packed theater, so shout out to Jordan Peele. But uh, on a Sunday afternoon, yeah, they show the Godzilla's King of Monsters, and it, it ends, and somebody in the theater just shouts out, "I'm seeing that!" <laughs> so, did you, did you first apo- of all, did you apologize to your wife for doing that? <laughs> People are psyched about that. But then there was um, <laughs> there was a trailer for Pet Cemetery. <laughs> kind of needs a minute. <laughs> there was a trailer for in. Pet Cemetery. Yeah, and. Uh, and like my wife had seen it before, but their guy next to me was like, what's, what's this about? And I was like, he asked you? No, he asked his date. And it was like, the movie's called Pet Cemetery. Yeah, it's about dead animals. <laughs> yeah. Coming it's right back. there. But misspellings too, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. A little yeah, bit. It's, it's so just, it's like, so I think a lot of the movies we have today, because they're, they're, they're remixed versions of things yeah. that we had in the past. It's like, do you really need to know? Did you, what Dumbo could just say Dumbo in Ariel font and yeah. just, no, in Comic Sans. Yeah. Everyone gets it. The elephant flies. Like, but similarly, I, there's no one on, not just America at this point, no one on Earth who sat out the first 21 Marvel movies and sees the poster with the sad raccoon on it and is like, well, I got to see how this wraps up. <laughs> there, there's, there's nobody. And that's kind Did of interesting. you see how long that movie is? It's three hours and two minutes. Uh-huh. That's fucking insanity. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, Are you actually excited? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited. I watched. I rewatched one and two recently of the the the, the Whedon's. You watched the first two Avengers films because mm-hmm. they're on Netflix, right? No, I just I, I watched them. Sean's doing a. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, how they how they hold up? They're different animals, different beasts. Raccoons. Um, there there's actually they could both use some raccoons. It is interesting to kind of think about Guardians being like this page turning moment for the Avengers because like they you can tell that there is. There's a lot of like good bants in the first two movies, yeah. But like it, the the whole thing kind of changes around Guardians. It comes yeah. becomes a little bit more itself. I think a little looser. Mm-hmm. I bring this up not because we're going to go on a big tangent because obviously these movies are coming and a lot of other culture is coming. But I just hadn't fully thought of that that as a difference between movies and TV. Because for example, I got a uh, I get still get press emails and I got an email from Netflix about some new show called Dead Like Me and it's. Um, I think it's Linda Cardellini, yeah. and uh, and I've no, I hadn't heard about it. I know nothing about it, and I thought maybe, maybe, maybe this is for me. Maybe mm-hmm. this is something I'm interested in. And particularly with the major studio films, they've given up that 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 is a variable that they have eliminated for business purposes. Right? The maybe's the maybe's. Yeah. The convince me, talk me into it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll give it a shot. Right. And it's a fully different business model and probably from a business perspective, clearly from a business perspective, that works for the studios. But I, I, I guess I still like the, yeah, I as mean, someone I, who's making a maybe, a big maybe right now, they I must, hope that people Some like guy it. somewhere in Burbank must be in a basement and he's got two computer screens mm-hmm. and it's basically like the chances that somebody will get tired of Dumbo are lower than the chances of somebody who doesn't understand the movie, the, like the alternative title. Right. Of something where it's like, okay, well, we, it it's so hard to explain to someone what, I don't know, like the that Shane Black movie from a few years ago, The Nice Guys. And you had to like be like, well, it's like a 70s kind of like hard-boiled detective thing, but it's funny. And it's about like this and like they're chasing down this porn king. And like you you have to like explain the plot. Now, yeah. I, I don't know whether or not that insults the intelligence of most people to be like, you guys just, it just takes too long to explain a movie. So we're just going to make Dumbo every 10 years. Um, I, I think that it's, you can look at it that way. And from our perspective of the kind of stories we'd want told, I think that's accurate. Mm-hmm. But I also think, you know, now that I'm a corporate stooge, I think that uh, on some level, it's a rational response to changing facts on the ground. And the window to get information to people is so tiny. Yeah. Um, well, the, also the, the two experiences are different. I mean, I think that going to the theater, people look at as... Um, not a chore, but like they want it's an it, investment. It, it's an investment, and people expect an ROI. And if you just turn something on return on investment, oh, I thought you were saying the French word for king. No, quoi? 
<laughs> was not. You expect a return on your investment. I just like, geez, this is speaking you, of corporate do you stooges. Want me to be your agent? Do you not know Yikes. what that means? <laughs> I've never heard that before. ROI? Never. Are you serious? Yeah. Mm. What's SRO mean? Standing room only. What's the thing about search results on the SEO? internet? SEO? Oh, yeah. What's that? Search engine optimization? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. You just said what it is. You okay, don't know what that means when you write. I, say, I said SRO. That means the difference is basically like, remember at Grantland where every headline was like a cryptic pun that referred to a Cormac McCarthy novel? It was great. And then now it's more like, what this thing tells you about something you already know about. That's why I don't, that's why there's no place for me on the internet anymore. No, but like, I just, I just mean that, it, but, but for you, mm-hmm. that might not be effective for 98% of the people who might come across that no, article, I agree. they'll I agree. be like, oh, okay. In, they didn't, they didn't like mood meridian. No, I'm just trying to come up with a Cormac <laughs> McCarthy pun. That's really good. Can I steal that? Yes. Um, not for, not for the ringer though, because that would. De-optimize. What was I talking about? ROI? Oh, yeah. Well, for, so for Netflix, though, like if you, we've talked about this, the ease of use for Netflix mm-hmm. makes it so that I think people give more things more chances. Well, yeah, but you know, it's funny. I'm, we were sitting here, classic, classic watch bit, classic me dogging on movies bit. Everyone loves that, uh-huh. especially Sean Fennessy. But it, while I was saying it, the first thing that popped into my mind in terms of this, the small window to get people's attention is the Netflix autoplay. Is the Netflix like you can't even? I mean, everyone has not everyone. Many people have different app or integration with it. But on yeah. my Apple TV, when I go to Netflix and I'm browsing, which is what I spend ninety percent of my like life you're doing, one thousand years old. I am, <laughs> but it starts. The, you know, the trailer starts playing immediately. Yes, I know. Yeah, which I find awful. Yeah, maybe I just want to linger for a second. I don't really want to watch Santa Clarita Diet. Maybe I needed to pick up a, a cold beverage. Maybe I'm being called from the other room. You don't. You don't know me, Netflix. Relax, that's what I'm saying. What did uh, what did your wife say when you were watching Triple Frontier? Are you enjoying this? Mm-hmm. Is that how you feel about this podcast? <laughs> watching me spin out? Let's talk about TV shows. Barry back. Let's do, do Barry, Barry first. first. Want to do Barry second? I want to do Barry second because we have a short short window on Veep. I don't have a lot to say about it. Yeah, let's do Veep. Veep chose to uh, Veep is back, and you know, like the the sort of concern troll about like how does Veep react to the to Trump's yeah. America is like obviously not a thing. Uh, it's just funny. I was sort of impressed by yeah. Veep's ability to still go high and inside to to borrow a baseball term, yeah. and not only go high and inside, but go back to the uh, mass shooting joke four times. Four times, yeah. That was after the the, the triple play, the triple frontier of abortion humor. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of SEO, the biggest laugh in my household was the Terrence Malick joke. <laughs> so, win, win, win. Um, when you say that, was that your daughter? Yeah. Was she like, that? I love that. Badlands is such a classic. <laughs> then she showed me the, Daddy, en- what the, happens en- the, the entry Badlands? for a hooker yeah. <laughs> under the, in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Um, it, it's interesting what happens when shows have been on for a while and you know they become not always the best version of themselves, but the most version of themselves. Sure. And Veep changed a lot when Iannucci, who created the show, stepped away and David Mandel came on. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it definitely steered harder into the jokes. Um, not that it was an issue-oriented comedy before, sure. but a lot of Iannucci's vibe was also a lot more about sort of the, the rhythm and the, the feeling of it. And there's this sort of the chilly air. I mean, it, there's something so specific about, about his shows mm-hmm. um, and the comedy that he does. Now it is just... It's almost like an all-star game. It's almost obscene, the number of comedic actors who are back for curtain calls. Yeah. And then just, they're still adding people. They're adding Andy Daly. Like, I don't understand how they have room for that. And you look, you wait for the credits, and their jokes are still going, because the show keeps running through the credits. Uh-huh. And you see this murderer's row in the writer's room now. Um, it used to be a much smaller circle of Brit- mostly British writers. And now, like, Ian Maxtone Graham, whose name is on 300 of the 1,000 episodes of The Simpsons, if not more. Really, yeah. uh, Jennifer Crittenden, all these, like, sitcom royalty have come in to just just, you know, take BP, basically. <laughs> yeah. And then you think about the fact that the season was delayed over a year um, because of Julia Louis-Dreyfus's health issues. And sure. she's thankfully doing so much better now, clearly. Um, they had a lot of time to just just keep worrying it yeah. and working it and massaging it and putting more jokes into it that, honestly, I was loving it for 15 minutes and then I was exhausted. <laughs> like, I kind of <laughs> wanted to take a walk. Because it, because it was almost like nine jokes per minute. It, it hit like a, a kind of max... It was just high volume, high velocity. And then you're like, why is Sam Richardson in both campaigns? And they, were, they made that a joke. 
<laughs> it's wild. I'm amazed by it. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong. I love this show, but I was like, this is, this is a lot of jokes, man. Right? The Tim Simon's performance as Jonah was really special. I mean, he's obviously a friend of the pod. He's mm. like a great guy, but Jesus, he was just really, he's really exposing himself out there. My, it's so amazing. Last night's Veep and last season's too, I guess, featured my number one and my number two LA Daddingtons, Eastside Daddingtons, yeah. Tim and Paul Shear. Great to see them being their best selves on TV. <laughs> yeah, Tim, Tim's on one. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's it's just an insane. It's insane to me that yeah. you have Gary Cole and Kevin Dunn, who are two of the greatest, maybe just greatest actors. Yeah, and they're just like middle relievers. We're using a lot of baseball. Uh, it's like it, having them in those roles on the show is like batting Michael Franco eight. <laughs> That's right. Where he's just hitting home run after home run. Let's talk about Barry then. Okay, Barry back. Barry's back. Talk to me about Barry. Um. I think any show that's on HBO gets a different level of like uh, interrogation mm-hmm. than almost any other still to this day than almost any other show. So even like sharp objects, it's like gets put under like much more of a microscope than um, than if it had been just like on FX or or Netflix or something like that. So it's interesting the narrative around Barry being like, well, what are they going to do next? How are they going to account for this character mm-hmm. being a bad guy? Mm-hmm. You know, and Allison wrote about this really well. Uh, I read a really good Washington Post piece about both Veep and Barry that sort of interrogated this idea. But I did feel like, uh, and, and Hayter talked about this with Simmons, mm-hmm. that he was like, the first season finished and people were like, it's really great. I hope that you don't make any more of it. Yes. And he was like, it was a really weird thing to be like, oh, okay. Uh, but the thing I love about Barry is that it kind of exists outside of that. Like you, like there are some shows that you can feel them taking notes from the, yes. from the wider public and from the audience, and Barry does not. And um, I just want to say that it's it was wild because the guy who replaced Barry as a hitman mm. for for Funks in the uh, Fuchs Fuchs in the uh, Funks. Yeah, I love it, <laughs> Doctor Funks. <laughs> Doctor Funks with a fresh fade over here. The guy who replaced Barry uh, as the hitman in the early scene, the amazing Cleveland scene. Yeah. I think it was uh, like a bartender in LA. I think I've had him as a you bartender. You know that guy? Yeah, I think so. Did you, did you tip him well? Yeah, always. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm just checking. I was like, are you worried he's coming for you? I love that guy. Yeah. There is a criminal lack of buybacks in Los Angeles. Interesting. Did you know that? You, I guess you probably don't hit bars. I don't go to bars anymore. <laughs> they, you know, because like in Brooklyn, yeah. in the aughts. Oh, man. You buy three, you get one free. Yeah. Sometimes less. Sometimes they would just get give them to you. Yeah. Sometimes they let you go behind the stick and just, <laughs> just dispense Start drafts pouring right pints your... for working men. Yeah. Back then, the attitude in Brooklyn bars was, if you want to see Dumbo, see Dumbo. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, that was really the governing ethos. Yeah. Uh, there was always a guy on the corner being like, you want to see Dumbo? <laughs> there's, there's something. It's, just, it's never, never an issue to see Dumbo in New York. Um, I like how Barry seems to exist outside of the commentary yes. about Barry. And uh, last night's episode could have come on five minutes after the finale of last season ended. Uh, Hiro Mirai directed it expertly. I thought that the way in which he does sort of pitter-patter dialogue between characters that then erupts into these sort of, you know, absolutely eyeball-searing moments of violence were really, 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 like, gripping. He's an amazing director. I mean, it is so beautifully lit, the show, even in the most humble locations, like the North Hollywood parking lot where the acting studio yeah, is. Yeah, like when he meets Hank for the second time. It's yeah. An, it's an incredible scene. And it's, it, there's so much thought into it. And I like what you said about um, how it exists in its own universe. Because at this point, and I was already doing this when I was a critic, but especially now, like I sometimes can't get out of the meta commentary. And I spent a lot of time, too much time watching the season premiere, wondering about tone, concern trolling in my own head about the balance of this show Mm -hmm. where we are supposed to take the acting seriously as a desire, but they also really make fun of actors, which is kind of an easy thing to do that. You can have a scene like the NoHo Hank love letter to the Bolivians Mm -hmm. montage (laughs) and also have the scene at the end where Anthony Kerrigan who plays NoHo Hank more than earns his new regular billing. Yeah. Cause that's an incredible scene um, where you can have the violence and the comedy and all of it. And it doesn't matter because they understand what they're doing. They have a line, 
and they have a compass of what makes sense to them. And it's sometimes you got to relax. Sometimes I got to relax and settle into it and trust them. And if it if it's I find it jarring, that's on me because I do think that there are steady hands on the till on the show. Mm-hmm. They seem to understand what they're doing. They even seem to have a plan in place for or at least a sense of how long they can make this run. I don't think this is going to be a seven-season show. Um, they seem to understand the show they're making, and when you can buy into that and trust it, then you're off to the races. Because yeah. it, it can be jarring. And, in, and there were moments, like Barry doing a kind of Australian accent, where you're like, are they just doing this now? Is he just going to be Bill Hader, the Bill Hader that we wanted him to be on some level and that the first season was a rejection of? You got to relax into it. There is a mastery to the show. Obviously, taking also advantage like Veep of the HBO budget where you have Darcy Carden, who is Emmy-worthy on The Good Place, just, you know, not even, like, way at the bottom of the guest stars at the at the end of it. I mean, sure. If, uh, Carrie Howell-Baptiste, also from The Good Place, on the show, just in a very small part. That Lululemon scene was really funny. It was really funny. Yeah. I mean, the show is really funny. Um, but, it, I, I, anyway, just to say that, like, as someone who is trying to write an hour-long drama that's very funny— it was rich and maybe more telling on myself that I was like, this half-hour comedy shouldn't be so dark. Uh, right. I'm, I'm excited. Sometimes it's weird to like have thoughts both as a critic and as a commentator and a podcaster and then also be like, well, what are they doing? How can I try to learn from that? Sure. And then just be like, no, no, they got it. Yeah, they shot also, the season. Th- Relax and let's watch I, I, it. It's an interesting, I think that it's, this is a show that comes into an era when I think we more regularly ask whether or not the people on we see on screen are like good people and whether or not we should be spending time with people who aren't good people. Yeah. And that they, is... They talk about what they are as people a lot. Well, and that's reflected on the fact that, I, as you and I have joked often about, is that frequently you'll have like moments in shows and movies where people, where characters will say like, am I a good person or I'm not a bad person? Yeah. Or, you know, like that. that is an obsession with uh, contemporary fictional characters on, on screen. Mm-hmm. But I think that... Um, I, I think that that's a concern of Barry the show but I don't think it like is an overriding concern I don't think it's a sh- it's a thing that they're like consumed by in the writer's room is whether or not Barry's good I think that they're like Barry's not good no he's not good yeah and Barry's it, a murderer so just like take that whether you're interested in watching this show about a murderer yeah is, is kind of up to you I, I thought that they did a really good job of communicating what you're saying um, in, a, in a forward momentum storytelling way and generally I'm not the biggest fan of flashbacks but that flashback the Afghanistan flashback the Afghanistan yeah. flashback the face that Hader made when he suddenly celebrated after being dismissed his whole life mm-hmm. for doing something abhorrent told us everything we need to know about the character. Um, and it paid a lot backwards towards the first season and understanding it, and it pays it forward towards wherever the ultimate end point of this of the show is. It was really well done. Yeah. And it's it was fun to have it back. It's fun to have it back to bringing this conversation full circle to the HBO-ness of it. Like, it, like we said, it's week to week. We can talk about it now. Um, the budget is obscene. Yeah. There are going to be good actors on it. Yeah, um, It's fun to have that back. And it, you know, reminds me that Killing Eve is coming back imminently. Yeah, right? Fosse Verdon and then Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones in two weeks. I can't believe that. Yeah. It feels, bringing this conversation all the way back to the beginning, inside the bubble of this industry where we live and we work, it's like it's already over. It's like, because every decision made in terms of what shows to invest in and casting and everything is all as if Game of Thrones was this, you know, it's the grail to chase again. So do you think that's the case or do you think it's going to be looked at as like, well, that is, that's the 1927 Yankees. No one's ever going to do that again. You well, know? they've been chasing it for years and there's still, the first fruits of that are still to come, like with the Lord of the Rings show mm-hmm. and everything. But it, what I mean is, the thing I just said to myself about relax, like I think that um, even as cultural commentators, and I say this as someone who will not be I guess I'm not going to be joining you obsessing over it in the minutes after the show airs. No, so you'll be like on Mondays. I we'll can relax yeah. more about it. But you take a full 12 hours. <laughs> it's just been so long. It's like, it's just actually going to be a thing now. Yeah. yeah. It, it, we're not just going to be talking about trailers and what it means. And it's going to be a thing. That's and my it, favorite part about it, though. That it's a thing. Yeah, yeah I like you, to have it back. I was re, I've been rewatching a bunch of it. I was rewatching Seven uh, just to, you know, get back in shape. And even, I mean, Seven is way better than a lot of TV. Yeah. You know, which was, I think it was maligned for some of the more TV aspects of it. Like they Mm -hmm. get from different places on the map very quickly or some, somebody's like, I'll be right back. And then goes off and does like a a two season long mission and comes back. Um, But 
just gen- like the g- genuinely like just like the level of uh, writing, mm-hmm. the replacement level of writing there is higher than most other shows. And, and uh, the acting is still so su- superb. And it is such a fascinating show. I think it's interesting to go back through the entire run as the binge mode guys have done so well and kind of note the different kinds of shows it's been over the years. Yes. Um, I was having a conversation with, I think maybe Fennessy, about when it changed from being about, you know, politics and power to being more of a epic struggle of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is probably after Red Wedding to some extent, or maybe after the Tywin toilet exit. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, it, it, it is, it, it's been a couple of different shows over the years. It's such a time capsule though. And, and what you just said, because remember that when HBO greenlit the show, it felt like a very strange choice for them. It was kind of a reach and they almost had to, they felt they had to prioritize the political gamesmanship and all of the things that are recognizable to people who watch The Wire, Deadwood, The Sopranos, yeah. to be a prestige show, to be worthy well, of they, Sunday nights on HBO. you're right. When in fact, that runs so antithetical to our culture, which is just like, oh, a show about dragons wrecking shop? Yeah. Like, Greenlight it. But that was, an HB, that was a thing, whether it was HBO or whether it was the way we talked about HBO shows, we would often be like, how The Wire explains yes. blank. They, they, you know, it, whereas... I think genre itself has become so preeminent in our culture that yep. people are just like, yeah, cool. Like his dark materials is coming. Like I don't need it to be about like the rise of uh, like Euroscepticism. It's just going to be a good fantasy show. But the, the story of HBO, at least the story pointing forward, is the story of Game of Thrones. And, and this is the anecdote I've told many times, but, but I'll say it again, just that going to Boardwalk Empire premiere parties yeah. in New York. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, this is, this is who we are. This is our business. And being like, no, no, this is not our business. And the incredible good fortune and, and good management and good decision-making, whatever we want to credit it to, that allowed them to literally ride a dragon from one era of television into um, content boom, AT&T merger. Yeah. We're going to put that's the bridge. three spinoffs on your phone. That's the bridge. They had the show that got them there, yeah. and, that's, and, and now we're at the end of it. So. Yeah. Fascinating times, Noho Chris. <laughs> Fascinating times. Uh, Greenwald, I don't know if you'll be on Thursday. Let's see how the rewriting goes today. Okay. Uh, we have some fun <laughs> shows coming up with some cool guests, so uh, all related to the shows that are coming up in the next couple weeks. Just tell me Colin Farrell's going to be here, and I will feel such every Every Thursday, Colin's doing a residency. FOMO jealousy. <laughs> We're just going minute by minute on Dumbo. Kaya, thank you as always. All right, so talk to you guys on Thursday. Great job, Brains. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. With ADT Real Protection, you can get all of the latest innovation in smart home security from ADT, combined with 24-7 monitoring from the most trusted name in home security. Get the nation's number one smart home securities provider and a system custom designed to fit your home. And get the ADT Go app with an SOS button for safety on the go. Learn more at ADT.com slash podcasts.